give me Scotland or I die. That was the daily prayer. Scottish reformer John Knox. Knox was imprisoned and enslaved for his faith. And though he was often sick and under constant threat of persecution, he labored through the preaching of the gospel, through prayer, through personal evangelism to bring revival and reformation to Scotland. John Knox's commitment to preaching the gospel, to prayer, and to the personal evangelism, it reinvigorated pastors, which in turn reformed the Scottish church and revived the the nation of Scotland. It is said of Knox that he did not fear men because he feared God. said that Knox was willing to offend men because he was unwilling to offend God. Knox's ministry of preaching and prayer were so well known that Mary, the Queen of Scots, whose government had persecuted Knox, is reported to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. I'm I'm challenged. I've always been challenged by the prayer and the example of John Knox. I want the prayer of John Knox to be my daily prayer and to be the prayer of our church. Give us Guyman or we die. Give us souls or we die. Tonight we're going to have our monthly prayer meeting and our emphasis is on praying for souls, praying for souls to be saved. Uh, And I want to encourage us all to labor in the gospel through prayer and personal evangelism for the the salvation of souls in Guyman and beyond. Now we're going to focus on one primary passage tonight, so open your Bible to Luke 16. That would be page 799, I hope, in your pew Bibles, if you have one of those. And I'm just going to read the story. We're going to start in verse 19. It's a familiar story. And then we'll come back and just kind of talk our way through it and pray our way through it. Luke 16 and 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was, the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades and hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now this is a fairly familiar passage, and it's going to be the foundation of our study and our prayer tonight. We are going to kind of go around in several other spots, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, but we're always going to come back here to this. Now, in this familiar passage is the emphasis of why we should labor For the salvation of the lost. Why we should be burdened for the souls of the people in Gaiman and beyond. And what we see in this, it should burden our hearts and compel us to labor in the gospel. Through prayer and through personal evangelism for the salvation of souls. Now in your handout, you see that the first reason for this 
is that hell is real, but it's not God's desire. Right? Hell is real, but it's not God's desire. Verse 19 through 23, the rich man dies, and then he goes to hell. Right? And so that is a truth that is taught in this passage, is that there really is a hell, and people really do go to hell when they die. Now that is a, a harsh truth, but it is something that we have to understand. Now as we look at this, something else that we have to understand is that this rich man, he really doesn't sort of fit the, I guess you'd call it the, the cultural idea of the evil person getting what they deserve. Right In our culture, the idea is that really bad people go to hell and everybody else typically goes to heaven. But we don't, we're not given a picture of this rich man as though he were a really bad person. Right? We're just told a few things about him. We're told that he was wealthy. Right? That he dressed in nice clothes, he ate good food, and he had a nice life. Now that's not an indictment of him. That's not meant to say that wealth is, is bad or nice clothes are bad or eating well is bad. It's just a statement of the facts. He was a rich man, he dressed nice, and he ate well. Uh, and then we look at verse 25, and some take this as a, an indictment on him. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. But that's not really meant to be an indictment on him either. There, there's no indication that the rich man did the evil to Lazarus. It's just meant to be a comparison. That in life, this guy was rich and life was good, and Lazarus in life was poor, and his life was bad. Right? There are no great sins charged to this guy. Now it says that Lazarus desired the crumbs that fell from his table. But we're not told that he didn't give them. Right? And so what, the point I'm making in all this is. All of the things that the world might say. Well he deserved hell. He was really bad and he went there. We don't see that here. Right? We see nothing that, that, that the culture would say, this is why he is such a horrible human and why he went to hell. So why did this guy who, there is no great indictment of sin, why did he go to hell? My understanding is because he is a, a Jewish version of a Laodicean. Now we don't have time, but Revelation 3, the last part of Revelation 3, Jesus writes to the church at Laodicea. He says that they are, they are rich, they think that they're rich, that they're increased with goods and they have need of nothing. They don't know that they're wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Right? This rich man, he's that. Right? That's the point. He ended up in hell not because he was a horribly wicked human that oppressed others. He ended up in hell because all the stuff that he had made him comfortable, it made him complacent, and it made him feel that he needed nothing, even nothing from God. Now, he was, was supposed to take a Jewish man, so God was at least a nominal part of his life. And when you think about that, that's a troubling thought. Because what we have here is not an evil, wicked, horrible person who goes to hell and gets what they deserve. We find a rich person who had a nominal connection to God who died and went to hell. If you think about it, how different is this guy, or the Laodiceans for that matter, from your average American? Right? Now, we may not be as rich as this guy was, or even as rich as we would like to be, but generally speaking, as Americans, we can afford 
good things in life. We can afford our nicer clothing. We can afford to eat well. And because of our prosperity in America, many people see little need for God as a regular part of their lives. At best, God is nominally a part of their lives and no more. And that's what this guy is. He wasn't especially wicked. He wasn't especially evil. He is basically every man. We could easily look at, the, at this man and the life he lived and see our friends, our relatives, our associates, our neighbors, and generally just anyone that we know. right? And we can see that this is just like they are. See, I think that's important. Because it's one thing to read about an unnamed rich guy who was in a story that Jesus told thousands of years ago that died and went to hell. Well, that sounds bad and that's no good. But it's vastly different when we look at him and we see our friends, our families, our associates, the people we love and care about through this lens and realize that they could easily be this guy. Right? When we put that familiar face on, on this story, it then becomes something far more troubling, something that becomes far more of a burden on our hearts. Now, this story would take on a whole new meaning if we replace an unnamed rich man with someone we know, with our coworker, with our next door neighbor, with our cousin Fry, our Aunt Susie, our, our brother Frank. If we replace him with someone we know that lives a comfortable life, sees no need for God in a regular uh, just a committed way, but is just sort of nominally Christian. At that point, this becomes a whole different story. And, and that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we, we ought to do in this. We, we certainly should see familiar faces in the flames as we read this story. However, we also want to read it in light of the fact that it's not God's desire for anyone to suffer this fate. Rather, it is God's desire for souls to be saved, for lives to be changed. But it is not God's desire that the rich man went to hell. It's not God's desire that the familiar faces that we replace him with, that they would go to hell. It is God's desire that they would be saved. Now, God's desire for the salvation of souls, there is a, it has a, a strength behind it, a passion with it that we can miss or forget if we're not careful. So I want us to quickly look at a few Places and, and I narrowed it down just to Luke for the sake of time. But we could literally go from Old to New Testament all over and see this same sort of this picture. So the first one is Luke 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now notice the, the intensity of Jesus' desire for Jerusalem, for the people to be saved from a wrath that is to come. He, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, there is a, a, a desire, a strength in that desire for them to be saved. But they resisted and they rejected and they continued to push him away. But his desire was still strong for their salvation. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus was so burdened about the fact that they were resisting and rejecting him was because of verse 35. There was a judgment that was coming. 
His desire was to save them from the judgment to come. But as they pushed back, as they continued to live in comfort and ease, they were pushing themselves toward a certain judgment. Now look at Luke 15. And we're not going to look at all of Luke 15 because we don't have time. But just a familiar chapter starts with the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes complain. This man receives tax collectors and sinners and eats with them. Right, so Jesus tells three stories that are essentially the same story. Right, and he tells the story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And all three stories essentially tell the same thing. That when something that belongs to God is lost, He wants it found. And when that which is lost is found, that there is rejoicing in heaven. Over the salvation, over the that lost thing being found. Now that is God's attitude and God's desire toward all lost souls. Right? There is no person that we can think of that is out of bounds, that, that is not lost, that God is not wanting someone to seek them and find them and bring them to Christ so that they can be saved. And then finally look at Luke chapter 19. Luke 19 and 41 through 44. It's very similar to what we saw in Luke 13. It says, now as he drew near to the city, he, he wept over it. Now, the rest of it is essentially the same, but I want to focus on the idea that he, he wept over it. Right? He, the word for weep here, it doesn't picture Jesus sort of stoically standing there while a tear trickles down his face. Instead, the, the Greek word that's used there is a, a deep sob. Right? The amplified version explains that he wept audibly. So what we see is Jesus now is, is coming in for what will be the Passion Week that will end in His crucifixion. And as He comes in, He knows that they have rejected Him, they will continue to reject Him, and they are going to have Him crucified. And He weeps not for the cross that's coming. He weeps for the fact that they are missing His salvation, that they are missing the reason that He came there. And rather than being angry at their rejection, rather than seeing them with, with, you know, fear and dread and anger at it, He he weeps over the fact that they are lost and they are going to be conquered and they are going to face a, a terrible, terrible judgment to come. Now all of these, there's just a few, they indicate to us God's desire, God's heart for the salvation of souls. So hell is real. There, there is no doubt. But hell is not God's desire for not even one person to go. So what we want to do right now is just take a few minutes and pray. And, and as you pray, ask God. Ask God to help you to see those you know and those you love as souls Precious souls that will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus Christ. Ask God to give you His desire for the salvation of souls. Father, we love You. And we come, Lord, looking at what is a hard passage and has many hard truths. Father, we must, we must embrace what Your Word says is real and right. And so God, help us, help us to have eyes that see, see those that we know. I mean, it really, it has to start with those that we know before it would spread out to the unnamed people around us. 
But we all know people that do not know Jesus. That are comfortable and complacent. Apart from him. Father let us. Let us see them as souls. Precious souls that will spend eternity in hell. They do not repent of their sins. And they do not believe in Jesus Christ. As their savior. And Lord. Father let this. Pierce our hearts that they would ache as Paul's did. at The need of the salvation of his brethren. Father let that burden of our heart cause us to, to labor in the gospel. To pray fervently for their salvation. To look for and take advantage of opportunities you give us. To talk to them about Jesus. Lord let us have your desire for the salvation of the lost around us. That Lord our our actions and our attitudes and all that we do, it would, it would emulate you seeking to bring lost souls into the kingdom and save people from the coming judgment. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Right, now go ahead and turn back to Luke 16 if you haven't already. See, the second reason we're to pray for the salvation of souls, and that is that hell is, is awful and unnecessary. Now, Jesus gives us in this passage two, two facts, right? Not opinions, not ideas, but two facts about hell that reveal to us the horrors of hell. The first one is that hell is conscious torment, right? It says in verse 23 that, the, that being in, in torments in hell, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Right now, that, that's, this is a, a horrifying concept, but it's what we see. The rich man was conscious and aware of what was going on. Right? He, he wasn't eternally destroyed so that he ceased to exist. He didn't die or soul sleep or, or anything along those lines. When he went to hell, he existed there for all of eternity, conscious of his torment. But if this story is a parable, that's one thing. If it's a, meant to be a real story, which is what I take it to be, then what we know is that this rich man is in hell still today. Still conscious, still tormented in the flames. But scripture teaches that all people live Forever. Right? All people live eternally. Our souls are eternal. Now some live eternally with Christ in heaven. While others live eternally separated from Christ in torment. Jesus in John chapter 5. He spoke of a time when the dead would rise. And he said that some would rise to experience life. And some would rise to experience judgment. What we see here is that the, the rich man... He went straight to judgment where he is there still today. Now many in our day, they don't like the idea of a literal fiery hell. It is a place of constant conscious torment. And so they seek to do away with it. Now if I'm being just real honest, truth is, I don't like the concept of a literal fiery hell where people go to conscious constant torment. I don't. It's not, I don't believe in hell because it gives me comfort. I don't believe in hell because I like this idea. I believe in hell because I believe that is what Scripture teaches. Right? And in fact, Scripture teaches it so often 
That it is impossible for us to say we take Scripture seriously on one hand and at the same time say there is no literal fiery hell where people go to conscious, constant torment. Again, we don't have time to look at it, but Jesus speaks about hell often. And that's important that Jesus does it because the world today wants us to say Jesus is just this kind of a hippie God that just love one another and turn the other cheek and, and don't judge. But He would never speak of anything horrible like hell. And yet here He is now talking about hell. And in every gospel account there is at some point where Jesus speaks of a judgment to come. And most of that time He speaks of it in terms of it being a literal, fiery, conscious torment of those who go there. So the same Jesus said, love one another, turn the other cheek and don't judge. Said, if you don't believe in me, there's a place of eternal punishment that you will go and spend eternity. Hell is conscious torment, but hell is also forever. Verse 25 and 26. Abraham says to him, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Likewise, Lazarus received bad things. He is comforted and you are tormented. But besides all this, and this is the key part. Between us and you, there's a great gulf fix. So those who want to come, who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those pass, no, those from there pass to us. There is a, a great gulf fix. Once death occurs, eternal destinies cannot be changed. People cannot wait until they die. And then at that point, trust in Jesus because at that point, it will be too late. If in this life, someone chooses to reject Jesus, then they will live without Jesus for all of eternity. If in this life, people reject Jesus' sacrifice for their sins, they will eternally pay the price that their sins had earned in the next. It is forever. People's decision in life about Jesus is made final the moment of death. Now I do believe that up right up until that moment where they die, believe like the thief on the cross, they can say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. But once that moment, that instant of death happens, it's set, it's forever. There's no, no turning back. There is a great gulf fixed. That separates heaven and hell so that no one can go from one to the other. Once someone ends up in hell, that is where they will be for all of eternity. They will be forever conscious of their situation. Forever tormented in the flames. And forever without any hope of reprieve. That is terrible, horrifying truth. But it is truth as revealed in Scripture. While hell is awful, it is also unnecessary because of Jesus. Jesus came to save people from hell. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Of God. In his death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and the sins of all the world that they had earned. There is salvation from the judgment to come, but that salvation is found only 
through faith in Jesus. Right? It is hell is awful, but no one has to go there. It is unnecessary. Everyone can repent. Everyone can believe. Everyone can be saved. Again, we're going to take a few minutes right now to pray. And as you pray, ask God to permanently etch in your minds the horrors of hell. Ask Him to also give you absolute confidence in Jesus' ability and desire to save anyone and everyone from this fate. Father, we come and we we struggle, Lord, to grasp how bad hell is. To understand with our natural minds that you have revealed to us in your word. And Lord, I know for me, hell, the thought of it gives me no comfort, gives me no pleasure. And yet, I know that that is the truth of your word. And so we, we do bow to the authority of your revelation of yourself, who you are and what you're like. We accept, Lord, that there is, there is a place of judgment. A place of conscious torment. A place of literal fire. A place that is forever. That once people end up there, they cannot escape. Lord, help us in this life not to, I guess, despair over that. For truly, there is hope in Christ for all people. There is hope for our neighbors. There is hope for our children and our grandchildren. There is hope for our co-workers and our friends. There is hope for all of the people that we know and love that do not know Jesus, Father. There is hope that they do not have to go to that place of torment. We pray, Lord, that you would etch in our hearts truly the horrors of hell so that we are burdened for the salvation of souls. But at the same time, etch in our hearts the glory of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Give us a hope that as we look at people, we would see that, yes, apart from Jesus, they will go to hell. But Jesus can change all of that. Let us understand the greatness of the gospel that Jesus can save and change anyone and everyone who will believe have your way in us that we would be your witnesses we would labor in the word and we would labor in the gospel for the souls of the people in our community we ask in Jesus name Amen. the final truth is that people must hear God's word It says in verse 27, the rich man says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that that he may testify to them. They also will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, These, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded there was one rise from the dead. Once the rich man realizes there is no hope for him, his mind goes to his family. And he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to go and testify to his brothers. Abraham's response is they have the word of God. 
And they can listen to what that has to say. They can be warned by that. And they can learn from that to flee from the wrath to come. The rich man says no. They won't believe that. And then Abraham makes what I I would consider to be an amazing statement. He said if they won't believe the word. Then they won't believe the one rise from the dead. Uh, Again, to me I think that's an amazing sort of statement. right? Because... On a natural level, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if I didn't believe a book, that would be one thing. But if somebody I knew died, rose from the dead and said, you're going to go to hell like your brother if you don't change your ways and believe the Bible and follow God. I kind of think I would change. I mean, I think that would be something that would be startling to me. And yet, according to Jesus, if someone will not believe the word, then they're not going to believe A miracle. I mean, how? That's a big thing, I think. I mean, I'm a guy that believes in signs and wonders. I pray for God to do big things like that in our church and through our community. But the reality is, the Word has always got to be central. The Word always has to be right in the middle of everything. Because if someone won't take the Word at face value and just believe what God has said here, then I guess the reality is they wouldn't believe a miracle. Because think about in Jesus' day. How many miracles did He do? He did a lot of them. He raised the dead. He healed lepers. He made the blind to see. He did things no one else had ever done. And yet at the end of His life, when He was risen from the dead, there were only like 120 out of all the people that had ever seen Him. Out of the thousands that were fed by Him. Only about 120 believed enough to be gathered in that upper room praying and waiting on the Spirit to come. Jesus did signs and wonders. People still didn't believe. The word is absolutely necessary when it comes to people believing in Jesus and being saved. And since the word is necessary for the salvation of souls, let me show you some ways to pray for God to work as they hear God's word. Pray for eyes to be opened. The eyes needing to be opened isn't necessarily physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. Scripture often uses the idea of seeing to refer to people understanding the gospel. Paul writes, but if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in on them. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says people don't believe because Satan has blinded their minds and he prevents them from believing. Satan is at work in their minds and at work in their lives. And he keeps them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is that's the condition of every person. Apart from Jesus Christ. They are blinded. Not only are they blinded to their need for Jesus. They are blinded to the fact they're blinded. Right? They, they're not someone who says, I, I, I can see that I need Jesus, but I don't want Him. Most lost people don't see a need for Jesus and, and don't understand why they would even come close to needing Jesus. And the reason that they are blinded like that is because Satan is at work in their minds, keeping them From seeing what they need to know. Keeping them happily headed towards hell. Believing all is right in their world. 
Satan will do all that he can to keep people from truly understanding the gospel, believing in Jesus, and being saved. Now, all of that is bad, and it should weigh heavily on our hearts. But there is good news because God can and does cause the light to shine in the darkness so people will see their need for Jesus. Right? Not only can God do this, but He does do this. You and I, if you're saved, you are a testimony of the fact that God can shine in the darkness of a life and show someone their need for Jesus. This is what must happen. No one will ever come to Christ for salvation. Until someone, until God shines the light into their lives. Now notice what Paul says. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. God shines the light through the Word. He doesn't shine the light as we talk about ourselves. He doesn't shine the light as we talk about our politics. He doesn't shine the light as we talk about our preferences. He shines the light as we talk about the Word, as we share the Word. So we pray that if we're going to go share the Word with somebody, if they're going to be at church, that somebody else would go to them. But we pray that God would use, that the Holy Spirit would use God's Word like a light to dispel the darkness in people's minds so that they would see the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Right? Secondly, pray for Holy Spirit conviction. Before an unbeliever will be saved, they must be convinced about their need for Jesus and then call on Jesus. That is, that's what the Holy Spirit does. When He comes, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. Of sin because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the idea of convict in the New King James and King James is possibly better expressed as convince. Right? Think of it as the Holy Spirit convincing someone of something they did not previously believe. Right? It's not so much that He makes people feel bad, although that's often what accompanies it, but that's not the point. The point is the Holy Spirit, He works to convince people of a truth they either did not know or did not accept. The truth is that they are sinners, that they are unrighteous, and they will face judgment apart from Jesus. Right? That is the truth that the Holy Spirit needs to convince people of so that they will be saved. When we pray for souls to be saved, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to convince them of their sin, of their lack of righteousness, and where true righteousness can be found, and the reality of a judgment to come. When the Holy Spirit does this, people are cut to the heart, as it says in Acts 2.37 in Peter's Sermon on the Mount. But the Holy Spirit does this through the Word. The Holy Spirit takes the Word and He cuts people to the heart. He brings that sort of conviction through that. So pray for the Holy Spirit to use God's Word like a sword. Cut people to the heart and bring deep conviction. Pray for strongholds to be broken down. Every unbeliever has some sort of a thought process they build up in their minds, keeping them from Jesus. Paul describes these as strongholds. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, any number of issues can be a stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It can be pride. 
The gospel is a humbling gospel, isn't it? The gospel, the gospel says you're a sinner. And Jesus died because of your sin. And you can't fix yourself at all. You have to come to Him, turn from your sin, and live for Him. Pride keeps a lot of people from ever really coming to Jesus. A false spirituality. right? Whether it would be some sort of false religion or some sort of New Age spirituality. Many people today are spiritual but not religious. They have some sort of a, a spirituality that they have embraced. And they don't need Jesus because this spirituality keeps them centered upon the light or whatever they want to say. And all of those things are, are these are the sort of strongholds that Paul is talking about. Sin. Sin can be a massive stronghold that can keep people from coming to Christ. A secular worldview. Right? If you have been indoctrinated from a child to the fact there is no God, that you don't need a God, that Humanism is the, the answer for everything, that we can just make the world and fix all the problems if we just get everything together, then you're not going to see a need for someone out there who may or may not be real that can do something in your life so that when you die, you can be squared away and go to heaven and not hell. Right? A secular worldview will make the Bible seem like so much nonsense to you. It will be a, a stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Shame can be a stronghold. Some people know that their sin is bad and that they've done terrible things and they are ashamed of what they've done. And shame for what they've done keeps them from believing they could ever go to Jesus and they could ever be saved. Hardships. People have bad things that happen in their lives. Many times the bad things that happen cause people to say, if there is a God who's good, why, did my, why was my life so bad? Why did these bad things happen? So that is a stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Pleasure. Right? The desire to do what I want to do to please myself instead of please Jesus to take up my cross. That can be a stronghold. Comfort. I mean the cross and taking up his cross and following him being a living sacrifice. That's not comfortable. That, that's not a comfortable way of life. So the, the reality of those things could keep someone from coming to Jesus. Apathy. Uh, more than one person I've talked to. They weren't sure there was a heaven or a hell, but, uh, you know, we'll see, I guess. We'll see what will happen. Not real concern one way or the other. That sort of apathy or complacency, I don't see an urgency or a need. It can be a stronghold. And then as we've seen with the rich man in Laodicean's wealth, it can be one. Right? Having all that we have, if I have a bunch and I don't need anyone to provide for me, it's not a big step to then say I don't even need God to provide for me. And there's lots more. Many other things could be strongholds. And while these strongholds do exist, Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are mighty that knock them down. Jeremiah tells us what one of those is that knocks down strongholds. It's not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. Scripture is described as a fire and a hammer. Fire purifies and burns out the junk out of our lives that keeps us from being like Jesus. And hammers smash strongholds and enable our thoughts to be brought captive. To Christ and our minds to be renewed. The word can break down those strongholds. And bring thoughts captive. So people see their need for Jesus. So pray that God, would, the Holy Spirit would use God's word as a hammer. To break down strongholds. So that every thought could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then finally pray for laborers. One of the greatest needs for bringing about the salvation of souls. Is for people to labor in the gospel and share God's word with others. 
Paul writes, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the certainty. That's the promise. But how can they call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus? They won't. That's a necessity. They believe and then they call on him to save them. But how can they believe in Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus? It's impossible to believe in someone you've never heard of. Now, it's easy in our day to say that's not an issue. The reality is we live in a world where people have never truly heard a clear gospel presentation. You would be amazed at how many people you see on a regular basis that truly have no concept of who Jesus is. And until they know who Jesus is, they cannot believe in him. They cannot call upon him and thus they will never be saved. And that leads us to the last part. How can they hear about Jesus if no one tells them? The reality is they won't. I mean, they won't. If you and I, if we're not willing to go and tell them about Jesus, nobody else is probably going to either. Because whoever we're saying, well, I think someone else will, that someone else is also saying, well, I think someone else will. So whoever we're waiting on to go to them and talk to them about Jesus, so they can hear about him, believe in him, and call on him and be saved, that person's also waiting on us to go to them, talk to them, so they can hear, believe, and be saved. There is no shortage of souls in Gaiman and in the surrounding communities that are lost and have no idea that there's a Savior named Jesus who died for them. And so we have to pray for people to rise up and share the gospel with others. And while we pray, we have to be willing to be the answer to that prayer. I mean, every believer is meant to be a witness. Every believer is meant to go and preach and share the gospel with people. We are all meant to do that. So we pray for that and then we have to look because chances are God is going to answer that prayer through us at some point. So pray for people to labor in the gospel and share God's word with others. We talked about hell tonight for the most part and that's not a, a happy subject. It's not one that we enjoy reflecting on. Most of us probably don't think about hell all that much. But it is something that we need to think about and understand and be clear about. And I've said before that studying on hell is kind of like picking a scab. right? It keeps the wound raw and sore and from ever truly healing. The idea of people going to the hell described in Scripture, it should always be raw in our minds and in our hearts. It should always be painful. And it should always be something that we are broken about. When we understand the horrors of hell. We just can't help but cry out for the salvation of souls. Alright, let's stand. And we'll close with a prayer. And we'll ask God to give us His heart for the salvation of the lost. Salvation of souls.